Good morning or good afternoon or good evening, everyone. You know, depending on where you are in the world, this is MP Slater with the Mind World Podcast. I'm your host together with uh, Jean Roux. Jean is not joining us this morning, even though I know that he really wanted to. Today, we've got a very special guest as we approach our 50th episode of the Mind World Podcast. We're excited to to be able to speak to more and more people and, and also people who are speaking to more and more other people. Our guest today is definitely no stranger in the technology environment, and he is Tom Raftery. Tom, welcome. MP, thank you so much for inviting me to come on your podcast, and congratulations on approaching the 50th episode. That's really a key achievement, I think, because many, many podcasts, they get this thing called pod fade, where they go for 10 episodes or so, and then they start to lose energy and it dies off. So hitting nearly 50 is a great achievement. Congrats on that. Yeah, thank you very much. Tom is a global vice president for SAP and innovation evangelist. That sounds great. <laughs> a futurist. But Tom, you're an international keynote speaker. I mean, so you certainly have made the rounds and, and many people have heard you speak. And I'm sure you've got to do lots of study and reading to keep it fresh, don't you? Yeah, that's a huge, huge part of my job is constantly reading stuff. And it's great because that's what I love doing. I love absorbing information all the time. The first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I reach for my phone and I start going through the different feeds that I have set up around different information sources that I like to, yeah. to pull information from. So I'm always scanning the latest what's coming down the line. And, you know, from doing that, you start to create trend lines. So you start to see, you know, well, this particular industry was here five years ago. Today, it's right. here and so in five years time, logically, it's going to be over there because that's the way the line is going. So you start to see these things happening and these kind of patterns emerging. And then you start to be able to say with some little bit of confidence, you know, as long as pandemics don't come along in the middle and screw up all your projections, <laughs> you, can, you can start to make some kind of predictions about where things are going. Yeah, I'm going to make a note to talk to you about uh, the, the pandemic and not only whether it screwed up your predictions with regards to timelines, but also with regards to content. But before I go there, <laughs> I do want to give you an opportunity to just tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Many people would like to think of themselves as armchair futurists and so on, but not many people get paid to do that job. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you become Tom Rautry? That's a, a long journey and we have a short podcast, so I'll try and, I'll try and summarize it a little bit. I'm a biologist by training. I, I didn't study computers. I did study computers in university, but only for you know a short time. It wasn't a, a big part of my course. So I'm a biologist by training and I've always had an interest in the natural world and biology. And there was, a, you know, when I finished my degree, I started doing postgraduate research towards a PhD. And while doing that, I got kind of hooked on computers. And so my two real passions in life are kind of technology and the natural world, you know, ecology, sustainability, call it what you will. And these two are now, you know, coming together nicely, which is great. But after college, I set up a computer business because that's what I was really into at the time and set up a software business, grew that, sold that in 2002, joined another company as a CTO, then, you know, went through another few businesses. And then in 2008, I moved here to where I live now in Spain, and I came here for personal rather than professional reasons. So 
Uh, I didn't speak Spanish at the time, so I needed a job that would allow me to work remotely. Right. So I was a bit ahead of the curve on the, the working from home one. <laughs> <laughs> allow me to work remotely through English while living in Spain. So I managed to get a job with an industry analyst firm as an industry analyst because I had been quite out there already and, and quite I, I was very forward in social media and had quite a, a profile. So sure. it was easy enough to land a, a decent job. I had a, a good few offers at the time, which was nice. And, and so I, I started working for this industry industry analyst firm and I led their practice around energy and sustainability and I did that for about seven years and then towards the end of 2015 two different organizations approached me independently and said listen Tom if you ever think of leaving Red Monk you know come and have a chat with us and I hadn't because I was kind of comfortable which was never a good place to be (laughs) and that kind of planted a seed and so you know the start of 2016 I said to the guys look I'm out uh, and I wrote a post on my blog saying, I'm leaving Red Monk. I am talking to a couple of companies at the moment, but there's nothing signed yet. So if anyone else wants to get in touch, you know, feel free. And I had some really interesting conversations come out of that. Elon Musk picked up the phone and asked me to come and join him in Tesla. Uh-huh. And the issue around that offer was tempting and all as it was, he wanted me to move to Palo Alto. Right. And I've got this lovely home in the south of Spain with, I know you can see there behind me, there's a, a pool and big gardens and uh, lemon trees and cher- cherry trees and orange trees and nice driveway and the whole thing. If I was to try and get that in Palo Alto, that would be tens of millions. Sure. You know, so moving to Palo Alto would, would have meant a big step down in quality of life for myself and my family. And if I was in my early 20s with no family, that might not have been an issue, but this was an issue. So SAP came along and offered me the role that I am in now. And I said, mm-hmm. absolutely. well, first of all, I said to them, uh, I don't know, because I want to stay living here in Seville. And they said, we don't mind. I said, okay, well, <laughs> you know, I have these social media accounts and, you know, I have this YouTube channel and I have, I said, I don't want to set up new ones, you know, because I'm working with SAP. And they said, no, 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 we want you to keep those. That's where your audience is. Absolutely. And, you know, everything I said to them, they were like, yeah, that's fine with us. So they, they made it really easy. <laughs> so <laughs> so I joined SAP in 2016. And to be honest, I haven't looked back. I've, I've, I've enjoyed every second of it. I've had great fun. Yeah. And it's in one of these SAP specific events. I think it was 2017, if I'm not mistaken, that you and I made. Sapila. Yeah. Yeah. Sapila in South Africa. And I was uh, doing a talk uh, together with Adriana Marais on extraterrestrial yes, mining and bringing back space resources, or I should say utilizing space resources and building models for that. And you were doing a, a talk on the fourth industrial revolution and the impact thereof and so on. So I found your talk very interesting. And, and since then, I've been following along what you've been saying quite widely. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks for that, Tom. So, you know, you've just spoken about those those uh, podcasts, and of course, you've got your YouTube channel as well. The two podcasts, the Climate 21 podcast and the Digital Supply Chain podcast, why those topics? You know, so many things that you could talk about. <laughs> why did you choose those? Sure. So uh, it's interesting. I, I found myself in the supply chain organization in SAP through an accident of reorganization. <laughs> I kind of... I. I you know, there was a reorg one year and suddenly, boom, I was in supply chain. I went, hmm, how did that happen? Okay, I'm in supply chain. I don't know much about supply chain. I had worked in a supply chain organization back in, mm-hmm. like between 2002 and 2004. I was CTO there. But, you know, that, that was in the, the kind of depths of my, my memory and mists of time. So I didn't know a lot about supply chain. So 
Uh, and I was at the time I was, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, I was doing a lot of keynote talks and there weren't a lot to do with supply chain, to be honest. So I wasn't contributing a lot to, to the team. So I, I stopped and said, OK, I got to do something here because this isn't very sustainable for job security, for example, if I'm not <laughs> contributing a lot to the team. So what can I do to contribute to the team? So I said, why don't I set up a podcast? Because I've done podcasts before and I'm quite comfortable with the medium. I did my first podcast back in 2005, 2006, 2007 called the Pod Leaders Podcast. Right. It's offline now, but it was great fun. And I said, OK, I can set up a podcast and I can invite supply chain experts to come on the podcast and I can ask them about supply chain and that way I'll be teaching myself about supply chain while at the same time contributing to the team. Right. Okay. So I pitched this idea to my manager and he was delighted. So I set up the Digital Supply Chain podcast and it's been going strong. I've published about 150 something episodes now. Oh. I'm publishing now two episodes a week, every Monday mm -hmm. and every Friday. And, you know, it, it's it's great fun. I'm loving it. I was doing one episode every two weeks and scrambling to do that mm -hmm. as I was running between airport terminals. But then suddenly February of 2020 came and there was no <laughs> more travel. So now I'm able to push out two episodes yeah. a week. And then the Climate 21 podcast uh, that came about because I heard internally that SAP had this Climate 21 project going on. So I approached the solution owner, Toby Croucher, who I have known for a long time. I approached Toby and I said, listen, Toby, could I help with this? I know it's not part of my organization, but, you know, could I help with this? Could I set up a podcast? And he said, oh, I'd be delighted. So... Uh, I set up a podcast on that, started last December, mm. and I'm pushing out one episode a week of that. It goes out every Wednesday. So now I'm, I have the supply chain on Mondays and Fridays and the climate one on Wednesday, and then I've got the other days of the week to scramble to try and do the rest of my job as well. So it's uh, it's good fun. It's good fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's interesting, the digital supply chain topic. I had a chat with, uh, with a partner of ours who is also involved with us in in digital supply chain optimization and connecting, you know, we're uh, heavily involved in mining, connecting mining technical schedules with supply chains in order to optimize that and, and also investigating the connection of the supply chain outside of the gate of the mine into the community and so on. It seems to me like this whole supply chain topic has suddenly exploded, that everyone's talking about how to not only optimize supply chains, but also responsibly manage supply chains. Yeah, I mean, the supply chains were up until kind of January, February 2020, they were seen as a cost center. Yeah. And, you know, supply chain managers, their job was to try and make them as efficient as possible, as cost efficient as possible. So this was something that made them quite brittle. Right. As it happened. And as we saw when, you know, the lockdowns came in March of last year, suddenly you saw shortages and you saw bare shelves and supermarkets and things like that. And you had all these funny things going on about toilet roll and <laughs> stuff like that. So because of that and because we've had rolling waves of lockdowns in different countries at different times and we've seen issues with containers and container ships and docks and ports and port workers and lorry drivers and all kinds of things like this and tanker ships getting stuck in the Suez Canal. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we've had all kinds of issues and this has meant that supply chains have suddenly been thrown into the spotlight mm. somewhere they never were before. And they've become now for organizations a strategic differentiator. Right. So organizations that now can have resilient 
supply chains are ones that can keep delivering and keep delivering no matter what goes wrong. And that makes them, you know, stand out amongst their peers. So the conversation has shifted hugely around supply chain. It's now a boardroom issue in most organizations, how to get supply chains working properly. Yeah. And it, it shouldn't have taken this for that to happen. Supply chain has always been, you know, key for organizations. It's why Apple does so well. Apple does so well because Tim Cook was in charge of their supply chain. He was brought in to fix their supply chain. He fixed it and then went on to become CEO, you know, and that's that's what has made Apple be where they are today. You know, they were in deep (laughs) duty for a long time. Steve Jobs came in, he fixed their product lineup, but they still had supply chain issues. They brought uh, Tim Cook in, he fixed their supply chain and they boomed from there. So this has been... This has been a big time for supply chains and it's going to continue to be because things are going to continue to get more rocky. I mean, you mentioned supply chains and the need for them to be more sustainable. It wasn't the word you used, but it was what you were alluding to, I think. Sure. But the whole issue around climate change, for example, is going to have massive impacts on supply chain. And that's going to continue to be the case. We saw this summer here in the northern hemisphere your winter this summer in the northern hemisphere we've seen massive floods in europe in china in india flash floods in the u.s there was one in i think it was tennessee a couple of days ago which killed like 12 people you know these kind of flash floods that were once in a lifetime of events are now becoming once in 10 year events and soon will be annual events and those kinds of wildfires that we're seeing as well this huge one in Uh siberia at the moment that's been going on for months the largest one on the planet larger than all the other wildfires combined so these wildfires are happening as well and droughts in in the western u.s all of these things are starting to impact supply chains as well and they're going to become more common so that and and and, you know tropical storms and all these kind of things that you get from climate change so Hmm. the more resilient your supply chain the better you'll be able to get over these kind of disruptions and the more you'll thrive. Right, right. So I'm sure you don't only talk to people about supply chains, but you also have a vision for for the improvement of these things. And uh, so maybe if I can ask you that, what are some of the major initiatives you see that companies are employing or that are being employed out there to safeguard and even streamline supply chains, both inbound and outbound? Yeah. So the... The two things that I think organizations are embarking on are changing their planning mechanisms to be cloud-delivered, using cloud-delivered planning solutions rather than Excel spreadsheets, for example, which a lot of organizations have been doing. But once, once you have one that's cloud-delivered, it means you can update your planning very, very quickly. Right. So organizations you know, often did their planning on a monthly basis or even every two months or so. Whereas now, because things are in such flux, you start to see them doing it weekly or even daily. Mm -hmm. And if you have a cloud-delivered solution, it allows you to do that even more easily. And, you know, everyone gets to see the latest at the same time. So that's one uh, key change that organizations Mm -hmm. are doing. They're moving to cloud-delivered planning solutions. The other big one is, and, you know, I I would say this, wouldn't I? They're moving to more digitization of their supply chain, hence the Digital Supply Chain Podcast. And um, what that delivers is end-to-end visibility Uh down through the supply chain. And once you have that, that gives you massive resilience. So once you have better planning in place and more dynamic planning in place, 
combined with the end-to-end visibility, those two together give you huge resilience in your supply chain. And I shouldn't be promoting my podcast on your podcast, but no, no, please go ahead. <laughs> for, for people who are interested in that, yeah. there are loads of examples that I have done that I've documented on my supply chain podcast. There's a great one with a guy called Jeff Markey from Coca-Cola, yeah. who talks about their end-to-end visibility program in Coca-Cola uh, for digitizing their supply chain. Some of the topics that I found that are coming up is, you know, involving communities more and more in that supply chain process. Now, now I'm not referring to the optimization of the process as such, but, you know, to what extent uh, companies are buying responsibly and uh, ensuring involvement in logistics and, and other opportunities for participation in that whole process. Is this something that you that you find that big companies are also starting to adopt as a commercial differentiator? Yeah, I think in general, uh, companies are starting to realize that they have to be more responsible. Right. The, and there's a number of reasons for this. First of all, in terms of attracting customers, customers these days are becoming more sensitive to uh, an organization's brand. Mm-hmm. And if the organization has some kind of branding issues, maybe they've been uh, highlighted for using child labor, or maybe they've been highlighted for their emissions or whatever it is, then you'll find that particularly younger customers start to become very sensitive to that and start to drift. And that's, that's a risk. So organizations, you know, who are concerned about brand risk and brand exposure tend to be more responsible. And that's, that's a big trend. Mm -hmm. And then you also have the idea of recruitment and retention of employees. Because I was talking to a former Timberland exec, for example, a few days ago, and he was telling me that when he was working in Timberland, the biggest thing they got from their sustainability initiatives was uh, the ease of getting good candidates for recruitment and the ability to retain them. Because the costs of recruitment are very high, and then the costs of losing employees, if you can't retain them, make the recruitment costs go even higher again. But if you can get good people day one and manage to keep them, that keeps your costs way down. So having your employees be proud of the company that they're working for because Mm. the company is doing the right thing is hugely important, not just for attracting customers, but it's also important for attracting and keeping good employees, because that's who you want to attract and keep, obviously. Yeah. A few days ago, I read that some Australian banks have started to review the the capital that they make available for, for companies, specifically mining companies in the coal industry or the fossil fuel industries. And there does seem to be this, this corporate activism that is going on that's also pushing this, this message that says, well, you know what, not only do we desire uh, a certain kind of company to, to participate, but we will reward those that are doing or that are acting responsibly with people as well as the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it goes even beyond that, because, again, I've had a couple of these kind of conversations on the Climate 21 podcast. Right. And what you're starting to see is that the investment community is becoming quite sensitive to climate risk. Mm. You know, there was a, and I've forgotten the name of it, but there was a German coal plant 
which was shut down just a few weeks ago. And this was a coal plant that was opened in 2015. So less than six years after it had been opened, it was shut down. And it was shut down because it was uneconomic. Now, if you were one of the investors who put forward, I don't know how many tens of millions it costs to set up a coal plant, but I suspect it's quite a few. If you were one of the investors who put forward some of those tens of millions and six years later, your coal plant was being shut down, that's a massive stranded asset. And that's going to become more and more the case, not just for coal plants, because coal plants now globally are almost completely uneconomic, but also as the price of carbon goes up and as people become more sensitive to it, it's going to happen to gas plants as well. It's already cheaper today to build new solar or wind farms than it is to operate existing gas or coal plants. And I mean, that... But, but Tom, if you don't mind me in- interrupting, isn't that a an, an artificial cheapening that you're talking about? I mean, carbon credits cost money, but that's not an absolute reflection of the of the real cost to run a carbon-heavy industry. It is rather something that is imposed in order to reach a, a specific goal, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Help me out. I mean, that's one way you could argue it. Yeah. What I would say is that the fossil fuel industries have benefited from trillions of dollars of subsidies over the last X decades, and they still continue to get massive subsidies every year. And we're subsidizing them to pollute the atmosphere and destroy the planet, mm-hmm. which makes no sense. Yeah. Whereas actually, we are not costing in the damage they're doing. They're not paying for that. Right. There's no polluter pays system in place apart from carbon credits in some geographies where it does exist. So if I went out and destroyed some municipal property, I would be fined for doing so, possibly even jailed, and rightly so. Sure. But if a fossil fuel company goes out and destroys the planet, they get a subvention for doing so. Yeah. How does that make sense? You know, it makes, and and not alone are they destroying the planet, Mm -hmm. they're also destroying our health. Right. There's something like 7 million people a year directly die as a result of the pollution from fossil fuels. You know, that's more than people who are killed in car crashes. That's incredible. For example. You know, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. And, as I say, we subsidize them to do it. Yeah. Rather than penalizing them for it, which makes zero sense. So that's why I say no when you ask that yeah. question. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 I, I absolutely get it. And, and it's interesting uh, that in, in a world where environmental and social uh, governance guidelines are not only guidelines anymore, but, but are being entrenched in codes and standards and more and more in, in law, there is a reward that, that goes from the shareholders to the kinds of employees that can be attracted by, by those kinds of companies and so on that makes it worthwhile for companies to invest in the kinds of operations and to change their kinds of operations to, to, to the kinds of businesses that, that have that brand and has a real reduced impact on the way that they, or on the impact that they have in environment, isn't it? Yeah, and the other thing is it will be a, you know, right now it's a competitive differentiator. Mm. You know, if you can demonstrate to your customers, to your employees that we are an incredibly sustainable company, that will certainly help your brand. But in two, three, four, five years time, 
that'll be the norm, yeah. you know, because it'll have to be. Because, for example, I'm based here in Europe. In Europe, we have passed a law which mandates all 27 nations of the EU to cut our climate emissions 55% by 2030. Mm-hmm. Now, if those numbers don't make any sense to you, I, I wouldn't be surprised because, mm. you know, out of context, it's, it's hard to perceive what that means. This is 55% against our 1990 baseline. In the last 30 years, we've managed to reduce 24% against that baseline. Yeah. So in the next eight years to 2030, we have to drop the other 31% in order to get to 55% mm-hmm. reduction total. So 31% in eight years versus 24 in 30 years. It's an enormous yeah. commitment. And it's, it's legally binding. It's legally binding on all 27 countries. So there's going to be all kinds of legislation passed yeah. between here and 2030 to mandate that organizations reduce their emissions. And they'll do things like, I mean, one of the first things that will be mandated is measuring and reporting emissions. Right. That's, that's just the baseline right there. And of course, that's another place where digital solutions and blockchain, et cetera, will play a big role. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And and there's got to be a carbon border tax enacted as well, so that, yeah. you know, we can't import stuff from carbon intensive countries and it'd be cheaper. So yeah. that, that'll, that'll knock that on the head. And it's not just the EU. America are talking about a 52% reduction by 2030. So the, the two biggest economic blocks, now the American one might go away depending on the next election, you know, mm-hmm. you never know there. Yeah. Uh, but it, it talks to, again, like I mentioned at the start, trend lines. Yeah. Martin Luther King had a famous quote where he said, the arc of the moral universe tends towards justice. And he's, he's absolutely right. It's the same kind of thing with this. The arc of people's attitudes towards climate are tending towards the right direction. Climate is going to become more and more important. In the EU particularly, we only have eight years to drop 55%. So it will be forefront in everybody's mind, particularly as we get to 2025 and we realise, yeah. oh no, we've only got five years left and we're way behind where we should be. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I, we were running out of time, but I've got one last question that I don't want to let you go before you've, you've answered that one. And that is, If we look at the impact of new technologies that are emerging, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning, cognitive solutions that are really coming of age and that are maturing uh, to become, well, some people say threats if we think of a potential singularity in AI and and others think of them as as becoming a game changer with regards to the way that humanity sustains itself. Some players like Bill Gates, and you mentioned Elon Musk, he's also talked about this a lot, proposes things like taxing software bots and, and, and other AI agents as if they were people to, uh, to help subsidize the responsibility of governments to, to have programs for the benefits of humans whose jobs may be at risk. What's your opinion about that, maybe as a last uh, question for our listeners? You know, I think billionaires who use lots of tricks to make sure they pay as little tax as possible. Talking about taxing robots is a little bit ironic. So, <laughs> you know, when, when, when you hear the likes of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk yeah. or anyone talking about taxation, you kind of sit back and go, really, how much tax did you pay last year? <laughs> you know, when you start paying your fair share of tax, come back and talk to me about taxation. But to your other point about AI, machine learning, Skynet, <laughs> as, as you alluded to as well, uh, and that, that singularity, we have 
a long road ahead of us, yeah. a very long road ahead of us to get to where we need to be. And every single tool that we have available to us will need to be deployed to make sure that we get to where we need to be. And some more tools that we haven't thought of yet. One of the big things we're going to have to do to get our emissions down, or actually, no, not to get our emissions down, but because we won't be able to get our, our emissions down enough soon enough, one of the other big things we're going to have to do is we're going to have to get CO2 back out of the atmosphere and do something with it. So, and, and lock it up some way. And this is a an enormous challenge mm -hmm. because it would be energy intensive. Mm -hmm. And we are talking about literally tens of billions of tons of CO2 that we need to suck out of the air and store somewhere safely every year. You know, 20, 30 billion tons. I mean, if you just think, what's the volume of a ton of CO2? And then what's the volume of 10 tons of CO2? And what's the volume of, now multiply that up to tens of billions annually. Right. And you can see the scale of the challenge. And yet it is something that we have to do. Yeah. And so there's going to be lots of technology needed to be invented between now and tomorrow, <laughs> next year, 2030, 2050, yeah. whatever, to achieve that. And all the tools you mentioned would be big parts of that. Yeah. Tom, thank you so much. You know, it was, it was great hearing your opinions and other than your opinions, but, but your analysis of what's going on in the world around us. I'd be happy to refer people to, to listen to the Climate 21 podcast and the Digital Supply Chain podcast. I'm sure you, they can find it on, on their favorite podcast apps. So just before we go then, we always ask our guests, what books are on their bedside table? What are you reading before you go to bed or or when you're not uh, busy talking to people on podcasts or, or traveling around the world. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I've just finished Project Hail Mary. Project Hail Mary is by Andy Weir. He's the guy who wrote The Martian. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I like to do a bit of a healthy mix of uh, fiction and nonfiction. So the Project Hail Mary is fiction, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then for nonfiction, I also have The New Climate War by um, Michael Mann, right. which is a really, really good book. And I strongly recommend to anyone who's interested in that space. And of course, most people interested in that space would know who Michael Mann is. And if you don't yeah. Google him, he's, he's quite well known in the in the climate space, at least. Well, we'll be sure to, to create a link to these books on our on our website, mindrp.com, under the Mind Warp podcast. So our readers can, uh, can refer to that and see where to find them as well. Tom, it was a blast having you on thank you so much for agreeing and and all the best with your initiatives and and hopefully we'll we'll touch base soon thank you so much for inviting me and i really appreciate the opportunity wonderful thanks so much <laughs>